Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. Today I have the pleasure of chatting with naturopathic doctor and author of The Blood Code, Dr. Richard Moore, N.D., In this episode, Dr. Moore will discuss key blood tests and biomarkers for longevity, starting with HOMA-IR, a measure of insulin resistance, defining what it is, what it tells you, and how it's impacted by diet and lifestyle. He will also discuss the use of the triglyceride to HDL ratio in heart health, how it compares to more conventional markers, and things to look out for when it comes to interpreting LDL cholesterol. Dr. Moore also dives into thyroid hormones, what markers he uses in his practice and the difference between a thyroid condition and dysfunction, as well as what your results may be reflecting in terms of your state of health. He shares some key insights into micronutrients to assess and monitor for your health, as well as a few tremendous clinical pearls of wisdom that he's picked up along the way. Great tips and insights here from Dr. Moore. If your goal is health, longevity, and performance, then you'll definitely get quite a few Uh, tips and pearls here today from this episode. And you can link as well to, again, the research papers discussed here at drbubs.com, as well as my layups, these simple actionable tips. If you're interested in more on lab tests and health, then please circle back and check out season one, episode number 29 with Dr. Kate Shanahan, formerly of the NBA's LA Lakers. Season one, episode number 42 with Professor Tim Noakes, more specifically to do with blood glucose, Season one, episode number 43 with Dr. Andy Galpin on biomarkers for longevity um, around muscular function and on the fitness side of things. And of course, if you're interested more on thyroid than Dr. Ruscio, season one, episode number 31. Terrific. Well, if you're new to the podcast, thanks for tuning in. Welcome aboard. If you want to get caught up on season two, then check out our highlights episode, season two, episode 18 called Rewind. If you're a regular listener and enjoy the information, please continue showing your support by sharing on Facebook, reposting on Instagram, and of course, retweeting on Twitter is much, much appreciated and of course, a big help to the show. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sports drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, let's get things rolling. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Richard Moore, author of The Blood Code, Unlock the Secrets of Your Metabolism, and naturopathic doctor who's been practicing integrative medicine for over two decades. Rich, thanks so much for taking the time today. Mark, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, listen, can we maybe uh, kick things off here by giving listeners uh, maybe a quick background of how you got interested in naturopathic medicine? Um, Always a, it's always a fun little walk through memory lane for me, sure. Um, uh, I was actually in music school in Philadelphia, and uh, for fun, I was reading 
textbooks on nutrition and ultimately natural medicine, thinking this was um, a common practice. I was reading the books of Carl Pfeiffer, the Mind Body Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, fascinating um, questions they were asking, which was essentially what are the nutritional therapies that can help people with uh, really complex uh, chronic problems. Um, it forced me into the question of what is a healthy diet? I've been practicing that on myself. I've been practicing that on patients for 24 years. And um, I've. it turns out I've changed the question. So I went to naturopathic school, uh, naturopathic medical school out in Portland, Oregon, back in the late 80s, finished in the early 90s. And um, I still ask the question, what is a healthy diet for the first 10 years of my practice before really getting um, the question honed towards how is any particular diet affecting the person in front of me? Um, and still, I'm, uh, I walk my own talk as much as humanly possible. So um, I didn't write a book. My first book I did write, I ended up putting it in a drawer somewhere. I had great um, advice years ago. You know, write your first book, put it in a drawer, and then start on your second book. And then after <laughs> you're done, true. publish your second book and then reach in that drawer, pull out your first book. And lo and behold, I realized the first book was um, kind of irrelevant. Um, but it did make it so that I never actually wrote, I never actually published my first book. I I published my second one, technically, which was great. My first book was um, called A Diet. You know, it was called The Fatback Diet. You know, I thought it was quite clever. Um, I'm glad I never published it because there isn't um, – a diet that's going to be unanswered. So uh, obviously the the second book was the better question in my mind, which is how do you test whether what you're doing is working for you or not? And then how do you tweak it so that you can, um, you know, better perform and live a better life? Absolutely. And it's um, great to talk about individualization and personalization. As you mentioned, there, just a who's in front of me, what is the best diet for them? So if we kick things off here to talk about, you know, lab tests for assessing health and longevity and perhaps the, the best diet, can we start with, you know, defining home IR and, and what it's measuring in folks? Sure. So this is, um, you know, the, the blood code is the name of the book. Um, the bloodcode.com has the, some of those calculators. So as soon as people go there, and in fact, right now I know, uh, that those, just those calculators are getting hit, um, you know, sometimes 50 to a hundred times a day. And it's, two simple calculators. One is that triglyceride HDL ratio, which is nothing more than a ratio, right? Um, if someone has a triglyceride of 100 and a HDL of 50, that's a two to one ratio. So their triglyceride HDL is two. Um, uh, the slightly more complex calculator is that HOMA IR. Um, HOMA is not very important for most people. That's the method that the test is done. Um, uh, but the IR refers to insulin resistance. Right? And that's the calculation to quantify insulin resistance. The reason this calculator is helpful is to find those people who have wonderful glucose control because their pancreas is in overdrive. Right? They're, they're producing very high insulin. And conventional medicine is – every conventional practitioner is using the type 2 diabetes and prediabetes metrics. Their only metric is glucose. Right. They're they're fixated on hyperglycemia being the definition for when type two becomes an issue. 
But many people are, I'd say about, of all the type twos, about 40% of them are hyperinsulinemic. They produce a lot of insulin to help them get their glucose in check. So these are people who are putting on abdominal body fat. They're people who have high liver enzymes because they have excess liver in their, uh, excess fat in their liver, right? That high triglyceride will be in their blood profiles. They'll have a low HDL because the liver's congested in its normal function, um, presumably because of the fatty liver disease. Um, So they're being blamed by their doctor for putting on weight, putting on abdominal body fat, and if they don't watch it, they're going to get pre-diabetic. The fact is they're already essentially pre-diabetic, even though their fasting blood sugar is a perfect 88. But their insulin is going to be 12, 14, 16. It's going to be well above 10. So that high insulin, if you run it in the calculator, insulin times glucose divided by 405 gives us this number. The goal is to have it as close to one as possible. Fit athletes are generally going to be less than one. You know so many people in that primal paleo community. And when you're really restricting that carbohydrate intake, we expect those baseline insulin levels to be quite low. You know, two, three, four, five are not uncommon insulin levels on a fasting blood test. Um, and this is in, I'm, I'm using this in uh, U.S. terms. I know you're in, um, you're in Toronto right now, right? Yeah, in Canada, obviously, yeah, England okay. as well, and we'll, we can do the con- we'll use the link as well for the conversion for the international yes, user folks. So don't worry about that. Very good, and of course, at the Blood Code, I do have some of those uh, conversion links. But um, what we're talking about here, when I say, um, let me do a quick, it's going to it's generally that uh, time six, right? So an, an insulin of um, three, when I say that's kind of the lower side of healthful insulin, that's an eighteen picomole per liter. Perfect. Right, so my, my systemic internationals, um, I generally want to see it below uh, 50 in the international units. Um, of course, a great early marker as well to kind of see when these trends are moving in that direction. And um, when you refer to the to getting uh, these measures done, is this going to be in the fasted state then for folks if they're going to get this test run? Yes. You know, years ago, I used to do the um, glucola drink. They drink 75 grams of sugar in a straight you know, I think it was only orange flavored uh, at the lab. And then they would sit down, be passive for two hours. And I would have a one hour glucose and insulin and a two hour glucose and insulin. And I was being quite thorough in my testing. Um, After about five, 10 years of doing that, I never really caught anyone that I wouldn't have caught with just the fasting test and the A1C. So if I run a fasting hemoglobin A1C, which is irrelevant of, of fasting, a fasting glucose, and then a fasting insulin, um, I can see the trend towards sugar. And I didn't need that postprandial challenge. Yeah, that's great. So Make it easier for, for folks to get it tested. Compliance goes up, all that kind of good stuff, right? It was exactly it. Um, uh, the compliance to sit there. And many people who are already moving towards avoiding sugars, I started realizing, why am I testing them with a 75 gram sugar bomb? <laughs> For sure. They already struggle with it. So it's uh... already struggling with it. So then I was using uh, 60, 50 gram meals, uh, using um, kind of bread or rice as the gram load. And it was getting just so complicated. Um, uh, the fasting test works 
99.9% of the time. Terrific. So, and so that baseline. And that fasting insulin, though, is often one that docs won't naturally be putting on that script for for an, for a uh, physical. You know, often we do see the HA1C. Um, so perhaps we can dovetail into that. But what would you suggest in terms of folks, you know, asking for that from their docs in terms of a fasting insulin, or going out and grabbing that from a from a lab? Oh, great, um, great point to bring up for your listeners. Thank you, Mark. The um, if there is one test that I recommend for people to request special from their primary care docs. Um, it's the insulin. It's the one test that won't be on there. And it is the one test that is, I think, the most valuable at steering your diet, fitness, and, you know, kind of a good marker of longevity. Um, just a tremendously useful test. The, even if someone had to pay for it, the cash labs, it's about $25. So, you know, this is not a test that has a great reason not to be run, except that at least in the U.S., um, our insurance uh, follows kind of Medicare criteria. So insulin is not an approved test for virtually all diagnoses. So the doctor can't put a code down to justify the reimbursement for the order. So it usually gets denied. Therefore, they don't want to put it on an order because – it doesn't just the insurance won't just deny that one test. It'll deny the whole panel that they ordered. For um, sure, for so sure. So it becomes a big clumsy effort. Um, you know, if there's one way you can just plea with your doctor and say, "Is there some way you can try to order it? I'll pay for it. Get it in there. Get that in with your A1C glucose and lipid panel." And if we dovetail that into the the A1C, there, doc, can you discuss? Um, what the A1C is measuring, and and again, what kind of uh, levels you're looking for? Sure, the um, you know, glycosylated hemoglobin. We call it the hemoglobin A1C. It's a calculation from that. We use the percentage in the U.S. So uh, your U.S. listeners are going to be looking for anything below 5.7 percent as the non-pre-diabetic level. Um, that is uh, below 39 millimoles per mole. Um, uh, international units. So we generally want to see that in that lower range. It's pretty common to see the pre-diabetic pattern in someone. And this sometimes shows up when I'm first treating someone with a very low carb diet, their insulin will drop and temporarily their sugars will go a little higher. Um, this is, uh, this was actually my family effect. This was the, um, I'm from a family of thin diabetics, so we tend to not be the obese type. We tend to produce lower insulin, but we have body tissues that are insulin resistant. So we'll have low insulin hyperglycemia. So in my early 40s, when my um, hemoglobin A1C was up at about 6.1%, which is right in the middle of prediabetes, um, you know, this is a number of, uh, let's say, 42, 43 millimoles per mole for international units, um, you know, enough where it opened my eyes. My mother was type two diabetic at 60 years old. So it was strong in my family, even on my father's side, it showed up. So, um, I had to address it actually by building muscle mass. So when I saw that high blood sugar, but the low insulin and my fasting blood sugars were just slightly high, they were just over a hundred, um, milligrams per deciliter. Um, so my, my treatment was to correct my A1C was actually to build more muscle mass, um, to work out, not by running and biking, you know, I had to give up my triathlon days and, uh, 
go to the weight room more. Um, for I sure. Change I mean, how I, muscles, you know, that massive glucose sink, which is uh, yeah, phenomenal for helping to correct some of that stuff. That's it for, for whatever it was, my size, my genetics, uh, you know, my physical nature. Um, I, I needed to balance my leanness by treating myself more like a bodybuilder, not like a long distance runner, even though I'm built like, and from a family of marathoners, um, they're just not healthy, long lived marathoners, which you and I might add that not many are. <laughs> it's a tough, uh, you know, the nature of the training, the volume so high. And of course the traditional practices are pretty carb heavy in terms of loading, uh, which is tremendous, obviously on a race day, but I think, uh, you know, if, especially for recreational athletes and in terms of the training nutrition, we yeah. can definitely, we know that we can do better these days with helping to maintain some of these markers, which you've talked about the home IR, the HA1C. Exactly. Is there a range right. that you're looking for, for, for the HA1C to, to, uh, let, let you know that the diet's on point for, for your clients? Yeah, so I, I see it in two ways. Um, people with higher insulin are actually going to have lower A1Cs. So this is where that HOMA IR comes in. It's kind of helpful, right? So if you have high insulin, I'll very often see someone who's centrally obese with fatty liver disease and their A1C is at 5.2%. You know, it's it's down around oh, 31, um, 32 millimoles per mole. Um, you know, these are really well-controlled very non-diabetic patterns if you just look at the A1C. But then you'll see the fats getting stored in the liver. The triglyceride HDL ratio is three to one. They're carrying central obesity. If you're using skin fold calipers, you'll see that. If you're using body mass analyses, you'll see just a higher than optimal body fat percentage. Um, so the A1C is sort of for the lean diabetics, um, as long as I get them to 5.7 or less, that's great. I tend to hover at 5.7, 5.8. So I'm actually in that 39 to 40 millimoles per mole. Um, you know, I'm borderline pre-diabetic, but for me, that's my, that's my zone. That works great for me. And the research really supports, it's not like the lower, the better look out, watch out for the online jargon. We always fall into the trap of the lower, the better. And someone's always going to print an article in some magazine saying, well, if prediabetes is this, let's not shoot for normal. Let's shoot for low normal. And for sure. very, I've seen very some, well said, uh, uh, and staggering great. how many times I've seen that A1C recommended online that we should be 5.2% or lower. Um, to so, say everyone should be 30 millimoles, 32 millimoles or less is just crazy talk. Um, there's no evidence to support longevity related to that whatsoever. It's a great, a great comment on the nuance of all this. And I'm glad you brought up the, you know, also measuring the home IR as well, because obviously in uh, traditional settings, just using that HA1C on its own is typically the practice and assuming that we can get all the information yes. we need from that one marker. So a great, mm -hmm. great point there of just having more information to really be able to steer and make sense of, of the information. And of course, you, you mentioned there the, the triglyceride to HDL ratio. Can you walk folks through why that's uh, important for assessing cardiovascular health? Oh, very good. Um, there is a tremendous volume of research showing that triglyceride HDL is a vastly better metric than uh, LDL cholesterol for predicting who's going to have the next heart attack. Um, it's a standalone risk factor. So it's not that it's related to cholesterol. It stands on its own. It's that triglyceride HDL. If I take it apart to define it, to me, it's the 
It's the internal metabolic leanness that someone's carrying in their bloodstream, right? Their, their internal systems, we can look at body fat percentage analyses, and I, I use the low-tech skinfold calipers in my office. Um, they're Fantastic. incredibly, incredibly valuable because it doesn't only tell me, tell me the total body fat percentage. It also tells me where it is. So if someone's higher on their triceps, I might have them tone more. If someone's higher at their core, I'm going to have them lower their carb more. Um, it helps me steer diet versus exercise emphasis. Um, but getting that number, the triglyceride HDL should match it. If someone's carrying high central obesity, I'll probably see a triglyceride above 100, um, you know, 100 milligrams per deciliter. The... Uh, um, it's it's that lack of synchrony that I'm often looking for. If someone's walking around lean, but their triglyceride HDL is a three to one ratio, that that's weird. And those of us in the diagnostic world as physicians, we love weird. It's like Sherlock Holmes, right? It's like finding a what's going a on volcanic, <laughs> It's like finding a volcanic rock where there's never been a volcano. You go, all right, this is going to lead somewhere. Um, so. We're looking for those skinny fat people, the people who are metabolically storing excess fats, but they're skinny. This is a this is a whole lot of long distance endurance athletes. Um, and more than that, I'm looking for more common is the people who are centrally obese. They're carrying a little too much body fat, and we're trying to hone how um, they can not only get lean on the outside, but how we can get them leaner on the inside. Again, they should be in synchrony in a healthy system. Um, that triglyceride HDL, I tend to be, um, you know, I tend to exercise pretty regularly and I tend to be on a very low carbohydrate diet. So I'm carrying a 0.5 to 1 triglyceride HDL ratio. I should be in the lean end of the spectrum at it. You know, at 8% body fat, my internal systems and my circulation should be carrying that level of leanness as well. So that's the, that's the goal. It's really, you know, for the clinicians out there, it's like, does it match the person you're, you're looking at those blood tests? Um, if not scratch your head and play a little Sherlock Holmes and say, huh, you know, maybe you're eating too many carbs for you. Maybe you're, um, uh, maybe we're missing something, you know, exercise wise, we're not getting this right. Maybe that person doesn't need the pre-workout smoothie. You know, we're actually trying to get them more fat adapted and we wanted them to do their workouts in a fasted state. Absolutely. Or, or that's so that 400 milligrams of caffeine as well in their uh, pre-workout that they, they don't realize is actually in there. Uh, I often see that in athletes as well. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry to cut you off there, Doc, but when yes, we, when we shift back to the LDL cholesterol, is there a point at which, you know, that would raise an alarm for you if it gets to a certain level or is it, um, it will that be picked up in the, the rest of the panel with the triglyceride HDL? Uh, it's going to be picked up in the rest of the panel. I, um, uh, I conveniently leave the LDL conversation out of the blood code just because it's, it's its own book, right? We could go to the, um, you know, the cholesterol myths. We can, we can tackle probably a hundred other podcasts that I've listened to where that cholesterol story is really addressed. Um, you know, I would point, point people towards Ivor Cummings, um, just about anything he's written, um, uh, a very new book they have out podcasts he's on. If people want to learn more about, um, the faults related to the LDL 
um, theories towards uh, cause and effect to heart disease and cardiovascular disease. Um, total cholesterol is if I just use that, there is a point, you know, for, for us numbers, um, the total cholesterol, if it's above 300 to 320 for men, you know, men and women, that's, that's going to be too high. Um, although I did see a woman just yesterday, her total cholesterol was 300, um, 331. Her LDL therefore was above 200. Her HDL was almost a hundred, but more than that, I did a, this is where I, I put my diagnostic hat on and I run LDL fractionation studies, LPA, apolipoprotein BA1 ratios. Um, for your listeners that are familiar with some of those um, uh, cardiolipid advanced tests, which yep. I, I had her, you know, she paid cash for this test. It was $140. Um, so this, this test used to be $700 only five years ago. Um, we have access to some really good diagnostic metrics. Every one of her findings um, was in the not just normal range, but in the optimal protected range. She had no inflammation. Her LDLs were big, fluffy, beach ball-sized LDLs, um, uh, just tremendously well-protected. So for her, a 300 cholesterol is her genetic makeup. And she's been exercising, going low carb. She's following all the rules. She doesn't smoke. Um, she gets enough sleep at night. Um, her numbers look fabulous. So for her, I'm even breaking my rule saying, well, if LDL goes above 180 to 200, that's a problem. Hers was over 200 and it still wasn't a problem. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Even the uh, differences between men and women and obviously cholesterol being so much more protective as they age. So great, great insights there from, from getting some biomarkers and individualizing that, that uh, protocol. And of course, if we, right. if we dovetail this over into some inflammatory markers, obviously inflammation upstream of, of insulin dysfunction and blood sugar dysfunction, are there certain uh, inflammatory biomarkers, lab tests that you like to, to run and get some information on your clients? You know, that's interesting. I, um, when I did the blood code, my goal was to keep the progress panel under a hundred hours. So it was $92. Um, and part of that was leaving out the C-reactive protein, which in the research really dovetailed with something as simple as the white blood cell count. So, uh, on a CBC, the white blood cell count should be between four and six. It's, it shouldn't be on the high side of normal. So when the lab gives normal levels for total white blood cell count, um, you know, that number is uh, kind of telling the um, systemic international units are the same here. So usually it'll be three to 10 is normal. I want to see it generally less than six. If someone's walking around with sevens and eights and they're not sick, it gives me a sign that the immune system is on an inflammatory search. Um, this is, this will commonly happen within 12 hours of a hard workout from an athlete. For sure. Um, uh, the important thing is recovery. You know, I, I have to remind every one of my, and I'm not just talking about athletes in the high pro sense. So for your listeners, um, us amateurs, athletic, um, athletic demand is all relative to the tone and fitness you're beginning with. So Absolutely. what many of us are are, are doing even in our, our local gyms is at an athletic level for us. 
So even though we're not doing what the video might be showing or what someone else can do, it has the same level of challenge. So we actually need the same level of recovery. So, and I know great. I, I should leave, I should leave you to be saying this, Mark. Oh, no, uh, great, great point, Doc. Uh, and um, that, that easily dovetails into my next area here. We're talking recovery or even obviously with metabolism, but thyroid markers often used in assessing athletic recovery. But as we talk about this yeah. idea of longevity and metabolism, where do some of those markers come into play? Oh, we might be opening up a little Pandora's box, but I'm, I'm <laughs> Go more for than it. willing to do this with you. And, uh, you know, I know so many, uh, so many podcast listeners are at a high level of um, understanding. So T4, T3 conversion slows down with athletic effort, um, sustained athletic effort. The, uh, this is the wonder of the less than 20 minute workouts. Uh, you can work out pretty hard for 15, 18 minutes and your T3 never drops. Your body never, even though you've heated up, your body never sees this as a threat to your capital, right? Your threat to your body. So yep. the, the internal thermostat just doesn't turn down. We, we maintain a basal metabolic rate where we were. Soon as that's maintained over 20, 25 minutes, especially in warm environments, you know, someone swimming in a warm pool is far more likely to have a thyroid reduction um, effect than someone in a cooler pool. Um, and this has been copied in just about every uh, environment that you could test. Um, that T4, T3 shutdown will raise reverse T3. It'll lower free T3. Um, and that will stay that way for up to easily 24 hours, um, where the basal metabolic rate is uh, significantly slower after those hard workouts, um, sustained heating up uh, workouts. Um, we look at that as part of our metabolic recovery. So it's one of those signs that if once T3 bounces back, we're probably ready to do another workout, but not before then. And um, it, go ahead. I was gonna say in terms of your uh, general screen, then if you're going to run a test on somebody, would you jump in with, with multiple tests there? Would you start with the TSH or how does that look? I do. I have the, I have the full gamut even for my progress checks so i run a tsh free t4 free t3 and reverse t3 um you know i i love to see that because i'm usually i'm looking for those amateur i'm going to use the word over recover or under exercisers or i'm sorry excuse me i'm usually looking for the over exercisers but i'm going to rename that under recoverers but that's hard to say Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing how, uh, you know, obviously we always, even the term overtraining is sort of misused, even at the elite level of this idea of capacity to recover being so key. And of course, as you mentioned, the thyroid markers just being a, a great uh, sense of that. And of course, people who have metabolic dysfunction, they're, they're inducing a whole type of stress that's almost the equivalent to exercise from, from just being um, in, in poor health as well. And sometimes that can influence some of those markers as well. Can you speak to right. that client who's potentially, you know, holding on to 20 or 30 pounds, abdominal adiposity, how that, how that might impact some of those markers? Oh, uh, the, um, uh, I don't know if I'm going to answer your question, right? Um, the, the, the insulin resistance, the reason I, I had one content editor early on when writing the blood code and she said, I think you may need to take the thyroid stuff out of the book and make that a separate, that'll be, you know, Edition three, um, you know, make it a different book, get it out of there. So I took it out. I tried writing the blood code without talking about thyroid. And after about six weeks, I couldn't do it. 
I had to bring the thyroid, so I dovetailed it all back in. Um, the reason is those people who have the hypothyroid trait are about twice as likely to have um, insulin resistance in their blood markers. So, you know, and, and I think that's, we'd have to talk more, um, uh, you know, ancestral vulnerabilities to understand that, right? The, the same environmental traits over the past uh, 100,000 years has favored uh, both of those traits. One is to um, burn less of your equity and the other is to store more with what you do get. So one is save more, the other is spend less. So For hypothyroid, sure. you're going to be spending less with a slightly slower basal metabolic rate. You're, so you're spending less at rest. Um, exercise is the great equalizer. You know, at exercise, we're all burning the same, whether we approach, uh, whether we come into it slightly hypothyroid or not. You know, once you're into it 20 minutes, you're all burning the same, at, given the same physical qualities. Um, so uh, the thyroid isn't, ironically, the thyroid itself isn't usually the driver. So when someone's carrying extra weight, um, 10 years, up to 10 years ago, I was using a lot of thyroid hormone therapies to try and be an adjunct. If someone had slightly borderline hypothyroid, I'd be treating them. Um, the fact is I never saw it work. Um, and I'm, I had my entire functional medicine community supporting that practice, and I actually think it's a failed practice. Our body is so good at deactivating thyroid that as we as pr practitioners try to increase thyroid dosing when the fundamental problem is um, either a dietary or nutritional or perhaps not even a problem, it's, it's the body doing its job trying to preserve capital. Um, we're trying to dose higher and higher thyroid, and the body's just increasing its deactivation. Yeah, it's great, great point. Something that I see as well so much is just um, almost an overinterpretation of what's going on and, and sort of the functional medicine or naturopathic side of some of these thyroid, uh, quote-unquote, conditions, or when a client comes in and say, yes. says, my, my thyroid is sluggish, or I think there's something wrong with my thyroid, then, you know, as you mentioned, when we get back to diet and sleep and stress management and getting the right training protocol going, all of a sudden, thyroid markers can just sort of come back into line as we start to see uh, patient success. Yeah, I've seen this over and over. Uh, T4, T3 levels, especially the T3 levels, uh, bounce back up when I either adjust their fitness program to allow better recovery or change their diet so that um, their, their body fat storage, I have to explain to them what's happening with that lower T3, that they're burning less calories, not all the time, but at rest. So they really aren't the people to be eating dessert. Um, they're really not the people who need pre and post workout smoothies or meals. Um, and that'll go against the stream of what they've heard in numerous other settings. So again, I use these biomarkers, I use these blood tests as a way of saying, um, this isn't my opinion against your nutritionist or your trainer or your functional medicine practitioner or someone who's given you nutritional advice. Um, this is what's happening in your body. Let's work with it um, and make those uh, make those subtle adjustments. Great, um, great stuff. Great stuff, Doc. And, and, and I'll add, you mentioned the longevity. Lower T3 is associated with longevity. 
So we actually don't necessarily want to drive someone's T3. There is this sort of sense in the natural health community that we want to have higher thyroid function, like low function is all bad. Um, once you're, you know, should any listener have reached um, the, the young age of 75, from 75 onward, you want your free T3 levels down at the um, oh two and a half or less. Uh, these are the picograms per liter. This will be, um, uh, say, point, uh, what would it be in yours? 4.0 picomoles per liter, which sounds like a low free T3, but actually that's your, that's your target. Um, you know, it's, it's totally good to have a low T3. It just means that you're probably going to feel sluggish and you're probably going to put on weight easier if you don't exercise at all. So we have to introduce as clinicians, the bad news that they're, um, they need to exercise every day. <laughs> they need to live an active life. Yeah. Which it's is, amazing how movement is so key to a lot of things. If we get people moving and moving the right way, then, uh, then we can, we can fix a lot of things and a lot of dysfunctions, right? That's right. Um, we've, we're probably doing doing it wrong when we sit our patients down in the office and then try to talk to them about their metabolism. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, and any other tests then, Doc, in terms of the health and longevity front that we haven't chatted about that come up as high on your list in terms of things to uh, you know monitor, um, get assessed? Yeah, good question. The um, while I do a number of advanced tests in my office, once I, you know, for those patients I see on the, you know, two and a half days a week, I'm in consultations, um, you know, in the blood code, I really stuck with low hanging fruit. You know, the, you know, when we talk about insulin, yes, of course, the three nutrients I'm running are the B12, ferritin, vitamin D, um, uh, as part of the metabolic discovery panel, but insulin, A1C, glucose, triglyceride, HDLs, um, that makes up the vast majority. And there's no reason for someone to be looking at some uh, telomere-related enzyme for longevity until they've truly addressed these, you know, five markers. Yeah, um, those bigger buckets are so key, right? They are such big buckets compared to some of the tests that are out there. So uh, I don't I don't use genetic testing. Um, you know, as the markers at this point, whether someone's a slow metabolizer or fast metabolizer are very interesting when you're looking at, you know, P450 enzymes. And it's not that I wouldn't get valuable information from these, um, uh, some of these advanced uh, genetic panels. Um, it just, it's so much more important to look at actually what's happening in the body, not what someone is vulnerable to have happen potentially. Terrific, terrific. And uh, if we circle back quickly, Doc, to some of those micronutrients that you mentioned, can you give us a brief uh, summary of, of, of those three uh, markers and, and what they're telling you? Absolutely. The um, ferritin is the most important. And that's another, uh, I tried to say it earlier, right? Insulin would be the most important test for someone to ask for. Um, uh, should their doctor be ordering a panel, knowing that that's not going to be on there? Uh, the other test to request, especially if someone's never had it tested, is ferritin. Ferritin used to be called, uh, back when I was in school, it was called the storage form of iron. Um, but when you read ferritin, I don't know if um, you've done this recently, but I, f I find myself in front of some of these metabolic research papers where ferritin is being referred to as a hormone, um, delivering muscle-to-muscle -muscle message critical for recovery. 
So post-workout, we're seeing ferritin jumping between cells and sending messages, which puts it in the category of a hormone, not a storage form of a mineral. Um, so having optimum ferritin, we've always known, is extremely important for athletes. We have um, ranges for women that are, say, 30 to 150. Um, uh, again, uh, those uh, that's universal for um, international and U.S. units. So 30 to 150 is healthful for women, but we've known that athletes perform better, women athletes perform better when they're at about 50 to 150. Um, I'd say three out of four women I test for ferritin levels are low. And one of those three are going to be extraordinarily low. Like it's been causing symptoms for the past five, 10 years of their life. Severe symptoms, uh, not just leg cramps, calf cramps, which is very common as the first symptom of low ferritin, but um, insomnia, migraines, uh, you know, certainly fatigue. Um, so people really need that ferritin levels up, the, that ferritin level higher. Because of the increased um, mass, muscle mass, uh, we expect higher levels for men also because men don't um, lose blood. They don't have 35 years of menstruation. So there tends to be a higher storage of that iron. So men, normal is sort of 70 to 300 um, nanograms per mil. So 70 to 300 is my optimal range. Again, athletes, I might want them to be closer to 90 or 100 as the bottom. Awesome. Um, yeah, awesome stuff. And, uh, great. and I'm, go, go I'm looking for rule out anyone that hasn't had this done. Um, it's in different populations around the world. It's about four to seven percent of any given population is carrying a genetic trait called hereditary hemochromatosis, where excess iron is stored. So part of running the ferritin at least once in our adult lives is to make sure we're not carrying too much. Um, that ferritin is also, it can get up, if it's uh, double normal, I might then run the, the genetic test. But if I see a type 2 diabetic that's got inflammation and high ferritin, often the first thing I'm going to do is get that lower carb intake, adjust their exercise. I'm going to try and correct the blood sugars and see if the ferritin goes down. Um, I've had some people, I thought they have hereditary hemochromatosis. They correct their type 2 diabetic pattern. And next thing you know, their ferritin levels are perfectly normal. That ferritin was a marker of inflammation. The liver will release more of that ferritin molecule in the process of generating inflammation in the body. Yeah, it's amazing how um, obviously an acute phase reactant, and as you mentioned, clients who are you know struggling with abdominal adiposity or high um, you know weight gain, uh, glucose mm -hmm. dysfunction, we're going to see those ferritin levels really high. And of course, it's key involvement in a lot of the signaling, as you mentioned, when there's so much noise in terms of that inflammation, it's that signal in terms of the exercise that also just doesn't come through as it should do. So as, as you mentioned, you know, you get them on the right diet, get them moving, and all of a sudden, we start to see that uh, number f come down. And of course, you mentioned kind of being in that sweet spot as well, but rather than folks just being, you know, thinking that more is better, right? That's right. And, you know, so it's, it's ruling out for the low, it's, it's the Goldilocks effect, right? We, we really want the bed that's just right. And that ferritin level is one of those, uh, one of those markers. We don't want to be chronically inflamed and we don't want inadequate recovery messaging. Terrific. And on the uh, vitamin B12 front, vitamin D, uh, what are you looking for there? Yeah, vitamin D, um, uh, I'm going to bring that one up first because again, there's a lot of misinformation noise out there. Um, I use uh, 30 to 60 nanograms per mil. That is equivalent to 75 to 150. Um, 
nanomolars in the systemic, uh, the international mm-hmm. units. Mm-hmm. So 75 to 100, um, 30 to 60 in U.S. Um, uh, there, years ago, there were some studies with various conditions like MS and uh, a couple other neurological diseases where they looked at the bottom uh, quintile or bottom decile and, and they compared it to the top decile and they said, wow, the, the bottom has far more MS onset, um, melanoma, than the top decile. Therefore, let's shoot for everyone being in the top. Um, it's a terrible way to interpret population data in retrospective studies. It, it doesn't work that way. So what happened was a lot of people in the functional medicine community said, all right, let's get your optimal range 80 to 100 nanograms per mil, which is telling everybody they should be well above 200 nanomolars per liter um, in vitamin D. That is just excessively high. I can't get people there without giving them near toxic levels of vitamin D. Um, so 30 to 60 is good. Once someone's in that, um, uh, 30 or 75, um, nanomoles range, um, they're out of all the risk categories of conditions. I practice in Maine and in our winter, we tend to get a lot of cloudy weather. It's a, it's a <laughs> Being from Canada, it's the same, it's the same deal from November to April. So, so, you know, for me to stay even, you know, up in my, healthful range, um, I need to take one to 2000, uh, units of vitamin D, um, every, um, every day for about six months a year. And I did change. I used to do all my workouts in the morning. It did make me feel better. Um, but I tended to then stay in my office for eight to 10 hours for the day. Um, you know, I now take an exercise time between 11 and 12, in the morning, I, I get out there in the winter time, right when the sun is out, and I'll go for a, a one mile run. I'll just get some exercise. So I think vitamin D is not just a vitamin, it's a presteroidal compound. Our body makes it. There's no other vitamin in existence that we do that with. So, by definition, it's so poorly named by calling it vitamin D. So, what we're measuring is actually this compound that our body, so we have to use vitamin D levels as proxy for our activity in the sunlight. Very well said. And yeah, it's amazing how even vitamin D we're seeing almost as a marker of overall health. Cause you know, as, as you know, as we, when we see that pattern of uh, insulin dysfunction or pro-inflammation, all these things, and we start to see lower vitamin D levels. And of course, when those things are corrected along with being out in the sun, it's uh, it's amazing how things uh, balance themselves out. That's right. It sure does. Um, uh, and B12 levels, uh, I'm really just looking for that healthful range. I use in the U.S. ranges, I'm using 400 to 1400 um, as optimal. I'm going to be slow on the conversion of that right now. But, um, you know, it's just slightly higher than, um, you know, the reference range on the lab will usually be uh, the point at which you're going to have neuropathy will be set as the bottom healthful range. You know, no, we, so we have to lift that bottom range on almost every lab report. You have to lift that bottom range. Uh, you know, ours is around 200. Um, I lift it up to about 400 cause that's the range we don't, we don't see symptoms. Um, uh, Terrific. I'm not using too much vitamin B12. In fact, a small amount supplementally is usually enough to keep someone peaked. So even a good quality multi, um, get that B12 level where it should be. Um, right in the middle of optimal. Um, 
I don't think we'd be needing B12 if we were eating liver all once a week um, or shooting oysters once a week. Nice. Nice. Um, Absolutely. Doing this and, you know, boy, if any of the low carb people listening have had, um, you know, Dominic, uh, D'Agostino, um, uh, Dom D'Agostino, uh, you know, he's just such a fan of eating those canned oysters. He'll, he'll pound through two or three cans of oysters at least in a week. Um, you know, those are about as high in zinc and B12 and iron as you can get any food. Um, yeah, amazing great. how nutrient dense they are. And, uh, as you mentioned, supplementation obviously can be helpful for those who are maybe vegan, vegetarian clients or people that we know might be at more at risk, but otherwise, yeah, some great food options there as well. Um, Absolutely. doc, I want to make, uh, you know, respect your time here today. So last couple questions for you. Uh, the first is, you know, the evolution of using some of these blood biomarkers for health. Where, where do you see that going in terms of whether it's tech or being able to access these, uh, point of care for, for clients So where do you see that evolution? I think it's, you know, we, um, we still have in the U S four States that do not allow patients to get blood tests done directly for themselves. They have to go through the doctor. Um, we did see a uh, part of about three years ago, our president signed a bill for the healthcare and Medicare adjustments, and it required all labs to have an obligation to release their results to the patient directly. Um, so this is only two, three years ago where, uh, you know, the, the feds actually had to come in and say, patients can be trusted with their own lab test results as, as though there was, uh, something the doctor was in sole authority to make these interpretations. Um, so that we still have several states that um, prevent patients from getting blood tests done directly. Granted, these people in New York State can drive across state lines and get their blood drawn elsewhere. So mm-hmm. everyone's still getting it done. Um, there are kits being sent in the mail. Uh, clandestine organizations are pulling that off. <laughs> For sure. And, uh, so I think the trend is to move more and more towards um, you know public access to uh, getting blood test results. It, it should be no different than walking into a a store that has a blood pressure marker and you stick your arm in and you get your blood pressure done. You stand on a scale, you get your body fat percentage done. You, um, these things, blood test results are really that simple to me. Terrific, terrific. Great stuff, Doc. And uh, you know, the last question for you here, the biggest take-home message for listeners on this health and longevity front, um, what would that be? Uh, it's a, I'm still, uh, you know, I was, I have a, a website out there that I've never launched and I was questioning whether to do it longevity me. Um, and it was kind of a, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to promote this longevity game, but realizing that, you know, I'm only just, uh, I'm only in my early fifties. Like I'm not old enough to write this tune. You know, we're all, you know, we're all fellow journeymen. And, um, what I was absolutely convinced about 25 years ago, um, uh, is very different than what I'm promoting now. Um, and I'm afraid that 25 years from now I might be tweaking it a little bit. So I think on the health and longevity front, um, my recommendation is to always keep a, an open mind, use metrics to make sure what you are doing is in the right direction. And while we want to take in a lot of this information, it's not faith-based. Um, we don't have to believe in the one thing. Um, 
we have to measure and be open to tweaking over and over again. And if that means, um, you know, the ultra low carb paleo diet isn't working for someone, like, great, you know, bring some bread back in. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I did that just yesterday with someone, uh, you know, she's had a fabulous success, but after two, three years in the diet and exercise, the way she was doing it, um, she was crashing, just low energy, low libido, very low libido. And, um, uh, you know, just gut was feeling all turned upside down. Um, so we had to back away from what was very successful in the prior five years of her life and make big adjustments. And that has, that has actually been working great. So it's always, and she looked at me saying, but that's impossible because this is working. And I had to say, well, true, but dynamic thing, isn't it? Things evolve and you're not the same person, uh, you know, hitting 52 years old for a woman, you're going to expect that what you were doing five, 10 years ago is probably not what you'll be doing for the next five to 10 years. So, um, for a pearl for longevity, I'm usually going to say, you know, it's the pearl is to pivot when needed and, uh, you know, use the measurements and use your guides and, um, explore and experiment. And I think, you know, people running podcasts, uh, that would be you, Mark, um, are incredibly valuable for us all because we can use this information to sort of make little adjustments in our lives and then hopefully make a measurement to see whether it was healthful or not and keep pivoting. So longevity, I think, is uh, about plasticity and uh, a work in motion. And I am yet a fellow traveler um, with your listeners. Fantastic. That's tremendous, uh, tremendous insight there. I think that's a great tip for folks. Um, and of course, all your great information here today, I think can help a lot of people as well. So where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your terrific work and research? Great. I'll be, um, I am at a Facebook, uh, at blood code. Um, the is usually the best way to get in touch. Uh, you know, my email is connected there. I am on Twitter with um, infrequent posts, but uh, they're present, and that is uh, Dr. Richard Maurer. Terrific. I'll definitely include all those links uh, here in the show notes at drpubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Dr. Moore and want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Uh, keep those comments coming. They're greatly appreciated. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, take a minute, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite platform. Terrific. Thanks, everyone, and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.